Uh, you're going to get a phone tree a little later for those of you that may or may not know. It's special call business meeting. All three motions carried in a pretty good little landslide there. So that was good news. And even better news, though, is that Christ remains at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you and I. Amen. All right, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 8 this morning. Question being posed to us as we watch and see these characters and these individuals that are in this narrative and how they react to the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. Uh, just to get, recap us here, we have seen uh, Jesus as he has uh, been showing us what it means to be a follower. And then Luke has taken us on this tour of miracles I hope that's for me. It is. Thank you. You're the man. Appreciate it. And, and here we are in chapter 8. Now, there's a couple of things that are interesting to me about this, and we're going to unpack this. But without further ado, let's look at this beginning at verse 40. If you don't have your Bibles, just join me in reading on the screen to my right, to my left. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an, an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him, touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and you are pressing in on you. Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Jesus, on hearing this answer, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter the, with him except Peter and John and James, that inner three, and the, fa the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping, mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they knowing that she was dead. But taking care, by, but taking her by the hand, he called saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that someone should be given her, something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Amen. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy and errant and infallible word. I pray that this truth is written on all of our hearts this morning. As we have seen in these narrative passages, 
we have seen Christ being shown to be authoritative over all aspects that is. We have seen him be authoritative over the storm as he stands on the boat and calls it down and it ceases. We have seen him be authoritative over the demonic, right? Last week we saw uh, we had the mass suicide. salted pork and we saw Jesus being able to command them so he has an authority over that which is spiritual and here in this passage today we will see that he does not just have authority over the spiritual not just the physical but he also has authority over death that's what we're seeing here okay authority over death Jesus has authority over all of these things now it is appropriate that we look at this passage in some ways, I almost wish that this passage had landed on Father's Day because this would have been a marvelous Father's Day passage. We see here a man who is a Jewish leader of the synagogue. He is desperate, right? Just because they're Jewish doesn't mean they all disbelieve and are enemies of Jesus, right? The finest followers that Jesus has are all Jewish, right? So it doesn't mean just because you read somebody's Jewish in there that they're automatically against Christ. Many were, but not all. And as any good father would do when their daughter is sick and if there is a shred of hope and they're a decent father, they would climb the highest mountains and plow the lowest valleys to make sure that whatever means that they are capable of getting for their child to save them, they'll do it, right? They'll do it. How many of you good fathers in here, when your child has been sick, has had a physical ailment, how many of you would have said, Lord, I will gladly trade places with my child if you will grant healing here? Right? I will take the sickness that they have if you will just give healing. We try to make deals. We will do whatever is necessary. One thing that we learn here, though, this father does the most important thing. He turns to Jesus Christ as his only hope, as his, as his, as his resort for help and healing that is here. So one thing that's interesting about this narrative is you have this opening with uh, Jairus and his daughter, and, and he is on his way to take care of that. But it is while he is on the way, while he is on the way, he is interrupted, right? Jesus is interrupted. And this weird thing happens, right? We think it's kind of weird. Well, I've read this narrative many times, and still to this day, I find it odd, right? When you look at this passage and you look at this narrative, as Jesus takes pity on this man who shows humility, who falls down before Christ, seeking the betterment of his own child, we see that the, he's heading that way to answer this prayer, going to the household. This man's asked Jesus to come, and Jesus is on his way. And as he went here, it says here in verse 42, the people pressed around him. Let me kind of give you a scenario of what I think this is like. While I am not a huge Nick Saban fan, I think he is one of the finest coaches that's ever been produced in NCAA football, right? Have you ever seen Nick Saban after an SEC championship? He's hard to get around. People are pressing in on him, right? It would have been like that, but more a little bit more harsh, right? A little bit more people. They, they, there would have been people all around him. And we see Jesus here in the midst of all of this crowd trying to work their way through, and he stops. Who touched me? Right? Could you imagine Nick Saban walking off the field, all those reporters around him pushed in on him? Somebody touched me. Well, yeah, somebody touched you. There's like 80 people around you right now. Of course somebody touched you. This is even Peter's reaction here. 
Another thing that has always bothered me about this text that I've always struggled with as I, as I wrestled with this text and looked at it again this week even, verse 45, who was it that touched me? Now, I'll tell you why this question bothers me. This is like whenever Lazarus died and he showed up and he said, where have you laid the body? You're God. You know where the body is. You're Jesus. You know who touched you. Why are you asking this question? So one thing we have to say then, if he is God in human form and he has this knowledge, why would he ask this question? I think it is for the people around him to hear and for their benefit and also for ours now. Because I want you to think about this for just a moment. In the Old Testament law, there's something going on in this text that if you're not a little bit familiar with the Old Testament here, uh, you may not see this happening in this narrative. The Old Testament demanded and required that anyone who had a physical discharge from their body, they were bleeding or they were uh, struck with some sort of sickness and their body was leaking something, whatever that was, whatever color that was, they were considered unclean. They were to be removed from the camp. They were to be put outside of the camp so as to not infect and spread whatever sickness they may have to others who were healthy inside the camp. So it would have really been forbidden for somebody, anybody that was a Jew would have known, it would have kind of been forbidden for someone to touch a prophet of God if they were discharging like this woman was. Now what exactly the sickness was, Dr. Luke doesn't give us, he was a medical doctor, but he doesn't go into great detail. I, all commentators seem to agree this was a, a female condition, that she was bleeding for 12 years. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. Think about it from her perspective. Bleeding for 12 years at this time? You would have had to stay close to home most of the time, wouldn't you, ladies? I mean, you couldn't just run out and do whatever you wanted to do. You would have had to have planned and had a plan of action the whole time. In addition to that, the Old Testament law dictated you could not have intimacy with your husband if you had a condition like this. So 12 years of having to plan your routine, being classified as unclean, not having intimacy with a spouse, not mentioned here, but I would assume that there's a good chance there was one. This has been her life for over a decade. She, has, she is in a desperate state. And it says here that she spent all her money trying to be fixed and healed of this, and guess what? To no avail. Modern medicine was of no help at the time. And then we see what happens here. She touches the fringe of his garment. She came up behind him, touched just the outer edge of his garment. Immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. Jesus said, to, who touched me? Peter here saying, there's a crowd here, right? Jesus here in verse 46. Someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Now, let me make one point of clarity on this verse. Jesus is not like Mario Kart, right? Like in Mario Kart, sometimes you can like lose power, like you get hit or something like that, like in video games or even your own body. As you exert, you're mowing the lawn, cutting the grass, you know, the power level kind of goes down. You're tired, you get worn out. The power level of God does not decrease as he heals, right? God can send power out, but God is not drained of power. So don't be, don't be sucked into thinking that, well, he must just have X amount of miracles or X amount of things he can do in a day. That's not the God we serve. It's a God who is all-powerful. 
He says here, the power goes out from him. He perceives it came out from him. And how is it that it happens? Well, this is, again, this woman is seated correctly in her faith. She turns to Jesus in faith. Look at her reaction here. And when the woman saw there was nowhere to hide, verse 47, she came trembling and fell down before him. We see a, we see a correlation here, right? What is this, uh, uh, this the, a leader of the Jews in the synagogue? What does he do? Falls down at Jesus' feet in humility, turns to him in brokenness and humility. What is this woman doing here? Trembling before the Lord, falling down before him, declaring in the presence of all the people that she was the one who touched them and was immediately healed. And look at 48, look at the reaction here. Daughter, your what? What's it say, church? Your faith has made you well. You see, it's not just faith. You can't just have hopes. You have to have hope centered on something. And the thing that healed her here wasn't touching Jesus necessarily. It, the thing that, that healed her was her hope, her faith in the object, and that is Jesus Christ, the one who has the authority to heal. That's what healed her. Faith alone saves no one. It's much like a needle at the hospital, right? A needle at a hospital with nothing in it can't do much for anybody, right? It's what is inside the needle that, that brings the healing, right? whether that is antibiotics or whether that is some sort of anti-venom if you've been bit, whatever is in the needle, the needle is the means of delivery. The faith is the means of delivery. It is the grace, it is the mercy of God that is the healing salve, isn't it? I thought that would get an amen. I'll give you, I'll give you another chance in a minute. Here we go. We move forward here. And the woman saw that she was not hidden. The Lord told her to go in peace. One thing I want to draw out here too, verse 49, look at this. While he was speaking, so they're on this way, they stop in motion to go heal this, this daughter, this 12-year-old girl. They stop and Jesus deals with her. A couple things we learn from this. One, Jesus is never in a hurry, is he? He's never in a hurry. Now, we get in a hurry, and we want Jesus to work at a certain amount of time and to move at a timetable that we want, but he's never in a hurry. Two, Jesus is always right on time. Now, I don't always feel that way, does it? Let's be honest. Can we be honest for a minute? It doesn't feel like Jesus is always on time, but the reality of this passage is he is always on time. When the sister sent word that Lazarus was dying, Jesus delayed. He had his reason to delay, and Lazarus died, but God brought him back. Jesus brought him back. In a similar fashion here, what do we see? His delay to talk to this woman. The, the, the word comes, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. In verse 49, you think, Jesus had been a little quicker. If he hadn't stopped and dealt with this woman with the bleeding issue, he could have made it to this 12-year-old girl. She'd still be alive. No doubt there must have been some in the crowd who thought the same thing. Lord, if only you'd been here, it could have been prevented. There's a skepticism that's in that, though, right? There's a, there's a foolishness that thinks we can manipulate God to do our bidding when we want him to do it, when we need him to do it. And then he moves on. Jesus hearing this, don't be, don't fear, only believe, and she will be well. 
man, you want to talk about hard to swallow, right? If you were that dad standing next to him, and Jesus looked at you and said, they said, your daughter's dead, leave him alone. And he looks at you and says, just believe. It'll be fine. Believe. Have faith. You've just seen what he did with this woman who had the bleeding issue for 12 years. Believe. You've seen him cast demons out into pigs. Believe. You've seen him calm the storm. Believe. What more does a desperate father have? When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter in. Not sure why that is, but that was his decision. He lets the inner three go in, Peter, John, James, the father and the mother of the child. And as they were weeping and mourning for her, he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And look at verse 53. And they, what's it say, church? laughed at him they laughed at Jesus when he made the statement I don't know if you have ever been in a home where a child has died it's stressful it is I don't really have words for it I will do the best I can to describe it to you there is a drain of energy there is high stress levels. I've talked to my other pastor friends about this. When people are in these deep states of grieving, it's almost like energy is transferred from those like pastors and other leaders that are there to try to help to them, to the grieving family they need it. I've woken up before after tragic deaths, like deaths of an infant or things like that. And I'm a pretty big guy and I like to eat anyway. And I've almost ate like a double count of the calories the next day because I just felt like energy was just sucked out of my body. The atmosphere of this room, if you can imagine, the curtains are drawn. No one else is in there. High stress. Jesus says this, and they laugh at him. Maybe it was a nervous laugh. Maybe it was a stressful laugh. But it's a laugh nonetheless. It's a laugh, let's be quite honest, of disbelief. They don't believe that Jesus can do what he says he can do. And here we're left in the wake of this to try to make sense of it. And what... What does this mean for us now? Well, one thing that I will say is this. He has a room full of skeptics. Even the disciples, his inner three, they don't really believe. They don't, they, they've not seen him bring a 12-year-old girl back from the dead yet. This is all new things, new territory for them, right? And how often do dead little girls get up and start playing? Not often. They're skeptical. You know... How many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis? Anybody know C.S. Lewis? Great Christian writer, author. Did you know that C.S. Lewis was once a skeptic of Christianity? Did you know that? At age 15, C.S. Lewis came across classic writings of skeptics against Christianity and fell into the trap. The trap goes something like this. It's always the same, the same among skeptics of Christianity. If there truly is a good God, if there truly is a benevolent God, if there truly is an all-powerful God, why is there suffering in the world? They call it the problem of evil. There could not, either God is not good or he is not powerful, but he is not the God that he describes himself to be in the Bible. C.S. Lewis fell into that trap. And he stayed that way for some time, from age 15 until he was in college, later years in college. I want to read to you the account of how C.S. Lewis came to know Christ. C.S. Lewis went to uh, Maldwin College in Oxford, England. 
began uh, to wrestle with the Bible and his time at, in college there with God's and the claims that Christ makes, claims like we see here in the text today. Uh, partly, that was uh, the, the thing that would get him was this. As he would study literature and he would study philosophy, he said this, he saw truth and beauty and goodness. But not only did he see truth and beauty and goodness, he said it inexplicably was always connected to Christianity and the Christian faith. Isn't that interesting? I have always argued as somebody who loves a good movie or loves a good book like Lord of the Rings, right? How many of you are Lord of the Rings fans in here? Anybody like Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Rings borrows biblical narrative and themes. Did you know that? It borrows biblical themes. You have Christ-like characters. You have Satan-like characters. It is very much every good movie you love. Who do you think Superman's based on, right? Superman is almost everything that Jesus is, but not quite, is he? <laughs> not quite. Every good writing, every good story, every good whatever, it's all based on that. And Lewis sees that. What it was, it got a hold of me. He said, partly, everything he saw that was truth and beauty and goodness connected to Christianity, everything in the world, everything in literature, everything in philosophy, every time he saw truth and beauty and goodness, he realized that it was not just connected to uh, themselves, but it was connected directly to the God of the Bible. And, but, uh, and, and in his own words, surprised by joy, here's what he says. You must picture me alone in a room in college, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted from even a second of my work, the steady unrelenting approach of him who I was so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me and in Trinity term of, 20, of 1929 I gave in and admitted that God was God and I knelt and I prayed. Perhaps that night I was the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. And he goes on to become a great voice for Christianity. If you're not familiar with him, I would recommend the book Mere Christianity to read as the first one in introduction to Lewis. Here, what's the point? Why did you bring that up? Well, here's my point. The skepticism and the level of skepticism that Jesus faced in that room, if you're faithful to Christ, you're going to face it. What do you believe? Well, I believe that God created the world six days and rested on the seventh. I believe that man fell, but it was part of God's plan that he would provide a Savior, Jesus Christ. It would be God taking on flesh and blood himself and becoming a man, living a sinless life, dying as a substitutionary death so that mankind can be reconciled with God for eternity to forever bring him glory in his name. Oh, and he is coming back riding on a white horse to bring judgment on the world. When you tell 21st century Americans that, half of this population will laugh at you in your face. They will. They will laugh at you. But the question will be, what do you do? What do you do when skeptics hear what you believe? Because is that what we believe, church? That's what we believe, isn't it? When, when skeptics hear you say that and they laugh in your face, what do you do? What did Jesus do when they laughed in his face? Let's see. laughed at him, knowing she was dead, 54, what's he do here? But taking her by the hand. Taking who? The dead girl. Something I need to say about this. At least you skip over it and don't see it. 
this girl and this woman that bleeds are connected. See, not only did Jewish law dictate that you were unclean if you were discharging something from your body, but if you touched human remains, if you put your hand on a corpse, you became, guess what? Unclean. What's happening here? There seems to be some transference of uncleanliness and sin from one to another. But it doesn't happen with Jesus, does it? Jesus can be touched by the woman who bleeds, and her uncleanness does not transfer to her, to him. Rather, his cleanliness transfers back to her. He can take the hand of a dead girl who, in Jewish law, would have been ceremonially unclean, and instead of it making Jesus unclean, he will now give a command, the soul will return, and life will be given back to this girl, and this girl will no longer be an unclean corpse. She will be a living, breathing child. When you see, the sin and the stain don't transfer to him like they do to us. charged them not to talk about it. Time wasn't yet to talk about it. We've talked about this before. It wasn't part of God's plan that all this would be known yet. It would be eventually, but not at this particular juncture. A couple observations here. Pastor, Jesus didn't show up for me when I needed him. When my loved one died, where was Jesus? Why didn't he show up and take them by the hand like he did this little girl? Can I, can I make a couple of observations for you if that's your position and your soul rails against God and is angry with him over that. Where is this woman who bled for 12 years and where is this 12-year-old girl now? Do you know? Are they still alive? No, they're deceased now, aren't they? Here's the reality of these miracles. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. These are temporary healings that are meant to point us to the ultimate kingdom and knowing Jesus and who he is. It is great and miraculous that Jesus Christ was able to raise this 12-year-old girl back from the dead. But you know what is a greater miracle still? That he told people he would go to the cross, die a, die a sinner's death, not be a sinner, but die a sinner's death, and that he would be raised in three days. The greater miracle here, this miracle points us to the resurrection of Christ, the greater miracle yet to come. It is through that death and payment that we have salvation, that the uncleanness, uncleanliness of our sin that we can approach him with now, that we can just have not just touch the hem of his garment, but have full relationship with, that we can be made clean. Because as we've seen here, the uncleanliness of the woman, the uncleanliness of the dead body, don't transfer to Jesus, but rather cleanliness and life transfer from him. Father, we bow before you and we thank you for this text today. Lord, no doubt we know we live in an age of skepticism. This morning we have heard the gospel. We have seen an image of the gospel. We have seen a picture, a flesh and blood picture of the resurrection in this text today. Lord, our hearts are inclined here to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Praise your holy name. God, we have seen through the eyes of those who were alive so many years ago, no doubt if they had not seen it themselves, may not have even believed that when you say something, when you give a promise, Lord, if we will lean in and believe, 
Lord, we will, we will not be disappointed. We will find satisfaction. God, when the skeptics come, when they persecute us, when the critics and skeptics laugh at us, Lord, help us to hold fast, to do what Jesus did, and that is keep doing the will of the Father. Help us to keep praying and loving our enemies. Help us to keep proclaiming who you are faithfully till the day you return. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Today we have seen a marvelous text that displays who Jesus is. That he is powerful over death, disease. He is powerful over the spiritual, over all things. Is he Lord of your life? Have you received the cleansing work of Christ? Is your conscience clear today? Maybe you're here today and you've been holding a grudge against God for a long time. God didn't show up the way you wanted when he wanted. Maybe now is the time to let that go and just trust in his goodness that he ultimately has a plan for you in your life. And you're going to lean into that. As we sing this song of response, I'll be in the back to either pray with you or to... Uh, to direct you to Christ as we sing. Please stand.